So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. That's on page 683 if you're using the Bibles in your seats. One of the things we are seeking to grow in and that we aspire to as a church is that we would reproduce and multiply. Healthy things reproduce, right? We live in a very sterile culture where it's all about me and if I've reproduced, that might get in the way of my life and what I want for myself. And so you have this sterile culture which very quickly as the years go by becomes a shrinking and a dead culture. But healthy things, mature things reproduce. And so we're seeking to reproduce leaders. We're seeking to reproduce participants, uh, followers of Jesus. And we saw some of that up here this morning. It was fun to see a couple of the teenagers um, cutting their teeth, learning to be a part of the worship band. And it reminds me of back when I was in high school, I was learning to play the guitar. Slowly, bit by bit. Ever since, I've been trying to learn to play the guitar. And along the way, there have been lots of skills and techniques to pick up and practice, way more than I ever imagined when I just thought it was strumming a few strings. There are various ways of picking, various ways of strumming. There's many chords and scales to learn. There are techniques for bending and sliding strings to add extra color and interest. And with the electric guitar, there's learning how to use various sounds and effects. And and at times, so much different specificity to learn got boring and it got monotonous. And um, so from time to time, I've put aside all those skills and drills and I've worked on learning to play some songs. As you may know, I love U2 and the way that their guitarist, The Edge, plays. And so I've gotten some U2 songbooks, you know, put them on my Christmas list and, and watched tutorials on YouTube and picked up tips from online forums which are dedicated to the edge and and i've learned to play some u2 songs and i've tried to play them the way the edge plays them in other words i've learned to imitate and to model my playing after how he plays and guess what happened in the process i wound up learning some of those picking techniques and chords and sounds in the process By imitating a person, by imitating a master, I wound up learning the skills and the techniques that I needed to learn anyway. And something sort of like that is what happens when we follow Jesus. When we model the way we live our lives and the kind of people we are becoming after Jesus, when we imitate the way of Jesus, we wind up in the process obeying the ethical commands that God has set out for us to keep. We wind up learning the lessons about good and bad, the moral directives for living good lives in the world that are set out for us in the Bible. Here's how Jesus put this in our passage this morning. He said, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. As we begin, let's take a few minutes to unpack what Jesus is claiming here. It's a bold claim. It's an incredibly audacious claim, as we'll see. And it's an incredibly important claim if we're going to understand the part of Scripture we're working our way through this fall, the Sermon on the Mount. Because the verses we're looking at this morning are the thesis statement, the main point, the key biblical truth, as we put it here at CBC, 
to Jesus' entire Sermon on the Mount. Let's start in verse 17. Jesus mentions the law and the prophets. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The first thing we have to realize is that Jesus is speaking here as a Jew to fellow Jews. And the law and the prophets are the major portions of their holy scriptures. In fact, they often use the the phrase law and prophets to refer to their entire Bible. Of course, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So the Bible that Jesus had and that the people had in his day was what the Christians now call the Old Testament. Do not think I have come to abolish the Bible, the Old Testament, Jesus says. Don't think I've come to do away with it, to make it null and void, to cast it aside. Now, why might people think that? Why might they think Jesus would abolish their Bible? Well, think about who Jesus claimed to be and what he did and what he said. Think about the Beatitudes we just studied several weeks ago. Think how radical, how upside down Jesus' message was. Also, Jesus presented himself, as the story continues, if you know the story of Jesus, as if he were a good, godly man. And yet he hung around with, and he even partied with, bad people and sketchy characters. He went to a party at the house of a shady, multi, uh, sorry, mafia-type tax collector named Matthew. He went to the party at another one's house, that one named Zacchaeus. He went to parties where prostitutes were present and he gave them attention and he received attention from them. And he stuck up for, he spoke up on behalf of enemies and oppressors of God's religious people, like a Roman army officer who he commended for having greater faith than any of God's people did. Not only that, but Jesus did work on the Sabbath, the people's religious holy day. He healed people on the Sabbath. He let his disciples pick and eat grain on the Sabbath. And he let his followers break other religious rules, like that you should wash your hands before you ate. That was an important religious um, practice for the Jews at that time. They considered keeping it to be necessary to do what's right and to live a holy life. But Jesus allowed his followers to break such rules. It seemed like Jesus didn't care about living a clean, holy, moral life. And the religious leaders challenged Jesus on these things. And when when they did, he didn't always argue with them about what the Bible actually said about these things. Sometimes he just more or less said, Yeah, well, I say these things are okay to do. And I'm more important than the Sabbath or the temple or the rules. Jesus was breaking and challenging some seriously important sacred cow type rules and behaviors which represented what people understood it to mean to be a good person and a godly person. And in many ways it seemed like, meanwhile, Jesus, well, as a result of that, Jesus did not live a moral life and did not follow God's commands and even 
that he thought he was somehow above them. And so the religious voices of that day called Jesus out. They, they gave him a reputation. They said, watch out for him. He deceives the people. He leads them astray. He is not actually a good man. He's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And, and so all of that is why Jesus has to say, do not think I've come to throw out the Bible. Don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, he says. I've come instead to, and note what he says, not to keep them, not to obey them, not even to uphold them, but what does he say? To fulfill them. Fulfill, what does that mean? Well, it's a favorite word of Matthew in his gospel. He uses it again and again, and it means to fill something up until it's full. (laughs) Surprise. (laughs) To fill up the Bible to its fullness. To carry to conclusion what the Bible has been anticipating. To carry out what the Bible has been intending to happen. To fill up the Bible until it's full. To live out the goodness, the morality in this case, that the Bible was pointing toward. Just like I learned guitar skills and techniques by imitating a person, a guitar master, and by playing like he played, I fulfilled the the point of what those skills and techniques were for anyway. So Jesus says, imitate me, my example, my life, Follow my teachings and you will fulfill the commands, the requirements required of you in the Bible. I have come to fulfill the Bible. Do you want to obey the Bible? Do you want to live according to the Bible? To keep God's commands written in the Bible? Follow me, Jesus says. Learn from me. Become like me and you will succeed. But how can this be, Jesus? I mean, you heal people on the Sabbath. You, you hang around with really bad, shady people. You break the religious rules, which we thought were God's rules. You criticize the Bible teachers we respect the most, the scribes, the Pharisees. How can you be fulfilling God's law and God's word? I mean, what Jesus is saying here in, in our passage is bold. It seems presumptuous even to many dangerous and bordering on blasphemous. It sure seems like instead of fulfilling God's moral commands, Jesus is ignoring some of them. Well, we're going to have to read the whole of Matthew's gospel to find answers to these questions. To resolve in our own minds and hearts if Jesus can actually be trusted or, or whether he is a dangerous, misguided fanatic. And for starters, we're going to have to come to grips with the rest of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Because remember, today's passage and today's claims by Jesus that he came to fulfill God's word is the key point. It's the thesis for the entire sermon. And so in the sermon, as it continues, Jesus will unpack it and he'll flesh it out for us. Particularly in the rest of chapter 5, we will hear Jesus say six times, You have heard that it was said in the past, in the scriptures, to do this. But I tell you to do that instead. 
How presumptuous. You have heard that the Bible says this, but I tell you that. But hear me correctly, Jesus says, I'm not abolishing what the Bible says. I'm actually fulfilling it. I'm bringing it to its intended purpose and meaning and conclusion. Learn from me and I'll teach you how to live out the sort of life the Bible has been calling you to all along. And what do we find in in the rest of chapter 5 as Jesus tells us six times, you've heard it was said to do this or to don't do that, but I tell you. Each time, Jesus doesn't make the command easier, does he? He makes it more demanding. Because he moves beyond the superficial action people can see on the outside, and he gets at the heart, our heart, our inner motivations. He says, you've heard it was said, do not murder. But I tell you, don't be angry with a brother or sister. Don't say nasty things to them or about them. You heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, don't even think lustful thoughts about a woman. You've heard it was said, love your neighbor. But I tell you, not just your neighbor, but your enemy too. Because your enemy is your neighbor. is the way God sees it. Jesus is saying in, in all these cases, if you do the right thing, but, but your heart is wrong, you, you've still fallen far short of what God wants for you. And then Jesus goes on in chapter 6 of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you do your religious practices, if you pray or you fast or you give to the poor, and, and your motivation is wrong, if, if you pray so you can brag or feel good that you prayed, if you fast so that other people are impressed by how godly and disciplined you are, Jesus says you have no reward from God. Because again, your heart is not in the right place. And so as, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, you realize Jesus is raising the bar, not lowering it. And, and Jesus warns us right here in, in this sermon thesis statement in today's passage, this, this key biblical truth that this is what he's going to do. Verse 20, he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who were the most holy, moral, righteous people anyone could think of, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. I'm not lowering the bar. If anything, I'm raising it. I'm moving you beyond mere external religion. I'm taking you to the heart of what God's commands, God's word, have actually always been getting at and pointing at, pointing toward. And then to just make sure we've got this, in the middle of our passage this morning, Jesus says, not the least letter, not the least, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. Not until heaven and earth disappear. Not until everything is accomplished. And so anyone who sets aside even the least command will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. While anyone who practices and teaches the commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I'm not putting the law aside. Not a word of it. You've got to keep it all. Obey it all. Every last word. Every last letter. But here's the trick. Listen to this. 
you aren't going to keep it by keeping it. (laughs) You aren't going to obey the law by obeying it. Because look at the people who are the experts at keeping it and obeying it. The scribes, the Pharisees, they don't even keep it well enough. You've got to keep it better than they do, Jesus says, if you want to be part of the kingdom I've come to bring. Or better, you've got to become people who better reflect and embody what the law was pointing toward than these religious people do. If you want to be a part of my kingdom, if you want to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, which you are, as we saw last week, if you want to be the sort of the people we saw in the Beatitudes who are blessed, fortunate, flourishing, who live the good life, then follow me, says Jesus, and I'll show you how you're to live out what the law is saying and pointing toward. You want to know how to keep God's commands better? Jesus says, I'll show you how. Follow me. Listen to me. I have come to fulfill the law, and so I will show you how. And that's what the bulk of the Sermon on the Mount will be about. How to live the kind of life God wants us to live and commands us to live. How to live out the Bible the way it was meant to be lived out. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will show us how to do that. And there will be some big surprises. Because here's what we tend to do as human beings. We we tend to make God's commands make the Bible into something other than it's meant to be. We tend to make God's commands into something we can handle, something we can measure, something we can judge ourselves and one another by. We tend to reduce them to a list of rules and expectations so we can tell on a Sunday morning who's living up to the standard and who's falling short. By noticing how people dress and how they talk and what they look like and who they vote for, and what they, we find out they did or didn't do on Saturday night. And all the while, there's darkness and there's deception lurking in our hearts, undermining and negating all of our good external behaviors. And Jesus will have none of it. Jesus won't stand for nice, clean-cut, respectable religious people who have dark hearts. He won't stand for churches where where you come into them and and you're not religious, you've you've done things you're not proud of, and you you meet all these pious together people, and and being around them just makes you feel ashamed and unworthy and further alienated for God. He won't stand for those kind of churches. Not in his name. Jesus is going to root out that kind of religion, to root it out of us in the Sermon on the Mount. So get ready. He's going to take us to the heart, a a deep dive into who we really are and what our hearts really are and what the human heart really is. A deep dive also into God's heart and what God really wants and intends for human beings to live out. So we can become the kind of people who are salt and light in the world. So we can represent and embody the the kingdom that Jesus has come to bring, the kingdom of heaven come to earth. Scott McKnight, a well-known blogger and author and New Testament scholar, describes Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament commands this way. He, He says, think of the Old Testament law, prophets, 
the, the rules and, and intentions God has laid down for us that do this and don't do that. Think of it as like a typewriter. Does anyone, everyone know what a typewriter is? Young people, do you know what a typewriter is? <laughs> it's like a keyboard hooked up to a printer, right? But there's, there's no screen, no memory, no programs or apps or internet. You just hit a key and tap. The typewriter prints that letter on the paper. And, and that's all it does. There are no fonts. There's no undo button, unfortunately. No cut and paste. No graphics. <laughs> Just, it's all it does. The letter's on a page. And, and so God's moral requirements, McKnight says, are, are like that typewriter. And then Jesus comes along and he says, I've got an upgrade for you. Gen 2. It's, it's a newer, better typewriter. And then... He hands us a MacBook Pro. Or for you Windows people, a Surface Pro. Sure, the, the upgrade still does everything a typewriter does, but it, rather it, it, it fulfills the, the, the purpose that, that typewriters existed for. But it turns out to be so much more, so much better than a typewriter. And that's what Jesus is claiming to be in relation to the Old Testament with its commands. He claims to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The fulfillment of all it was pointing toward and and working for. And so the goal of, of Christian living and Christian morality is no longer about living up to a list of rules or commands. Now it's about following a person. Following his teaching and his commands, also imitating his example learning to become like him all the way down to our hearts so that we become new people, transformed people, people who are like Jesus, people who are poor in spirit and humble, merciful, peacemakers, pure in heart, having integrity, salt and light in the world to bring about the kingdom of love and peace that Jesus came to bring and that we'll one day be fully here. That's what we have to look forward to as we continue to explore the Sermon on the Mount. As we close, I want to do something a little different. Uh, because, um, you know, let me ask, why, why do we take 30 minutes each Sunday to listen to someone up here give a monologue about a passage of Scripture? It's not to fill our heads with more information about God. Not just that anyway, or to fulfill our notebooks with content about God, or, or even to learn more about the Bible. No, why do we spend that time here? We do it to hear from God. We do it to hear his voice in our minds and in our hearts. So here's one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves as we come together on Sunday morning. What is God saying to me this morning? What is God saying to me? I want to give you a minute to think about that. What is God saying to you this morning? And then in, in a minute, I'll invite you um, to share that with us if you want to. If you sense what it is and you're willing to share it. So take a minute. What is God saying to you this morning? I'd like to invite a few of you. Um, if you sense God saying something to you and you feel it's something that would be appropriate to share um, to share it 
just a couple things. Make it about you, not someone else. And uh, please make it short and uh, loud enough so everyone can hear. Do a few people want to share? Ann? Um, I think I heard God saying to me, what are you measuring mm. to, to see if I'm right with God or not? Mm. Can you all hear that? So, what what are you measuring to see if you're right with God or not? What are you measuring? Kathy? Um, God's continually working on me this past year, and this was more of the same. Um, the word that comes to my mind is trust. You know, what am I trusting in? Um, do I believe what I believe? Mm. That God is enough, and, and Christ will provide the model and provide the way. Mm. Thanks. Yes, one. One is just a sense that God is not a narcissist, and He's not asking me these things because He needs something from me or wants to accomplish something for me. It's because it's the best thing for me, mm. and He smiles when it's the best. Did you hear that? Any guys? Ken? That I can uh, trust Jesus to transform my heart um, to be what he um, was telling us um, about um, about how to obey the le- not the letter of the law, but the just Jesus is just of the law. Yeah. You know, I wish I had another half hour to <laughs> point us back to God's grace because we need this is for our good but we need to trust Jesus and he's got to change our hearts and he's, he's going to have to forgive us when we fall short and we do and he does forgive us thank you and Nora I thought about the scripture said about keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus the author and finisher of our faith and the question that came to me that I sense God asked God asking me to consider was what is distracting me from mm. keeping my eyes fixed on Jesus. Mm. Way in back. Hey, Dick, I don't know why I was writing as we were talking. <laughs> Do you mind if I read? It's really short. I won't bore you. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Val. So the thing that came into mind was uh, as we were talking about the law, it was great. Law versus grace. So um, I'm just going to read it off here. Um, the in the Bible can only be achieved by grace, and grace can only be applied if it is given as a gift by God. In other words, we must prove to God that we are worthy of His grace, and righteousness makes up the foundation of God's grace, where we are not bound by bound by sin, by the way we are bound by law. I'll get time. Um, why are we bound by sin through the law? Because the blood pumping through our veins is contaminated by the sin inflicted by the serpent into Eve, which has been passed on to the rest of humanity. Matthew 5, 17 through 20 serves as a vehicle toward the road to righteousness, where grace is the engine and our hearts are the drivers. God begins with what he sees in our hearts, and that determines our spiritual destiny. Under God's grace, where fulfillment of love is applied accordingly. Mm. That's great. I love that. Grace is the engine for this to be lived out. Thank you. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's, it's amazing. We, 
you know, you hear one sermon and yet God speaks to our hearts, each something a little different of, of what we hear. And, you know, just as important as what is God saying to me individually is what is God saying to us as a community. I thought this would be a risky passage to do that with because um, it's easy to think about how the other guy needs to be doing it. <laughs> and I didn't want to let you go there, but it would be a great question for some other passages. One last question I'll leave you with. We won't talk about this, but as we close, the first important question is, what is God saying to me or to us? The second question is, what am I going to do about it? And I'll leave you to work that out this week.